0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. But for now, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 and then we'll, we'll work our way through it. Listen to these words. This is the word of God. Verse 1 chapter 2. Peter writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, Because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, what a passage. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand these things. Father, oh, these are magnificent and monumental words. And we need your help. We need your help to understand them, to apply them to our lives, and to, to be humbled by them and to order, our, not to judge these words, but to let these words judge our lives and to order our lives in light, of, in light of these words. For my friends in this room that are followers of Jesus, that have tasted that the Lord is good, I pray that this would encourage and convict and inspire and saturate us with the gospel. And my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, I I pray that by your good pleasure, by your great love, that you might open their hearts and eyes and ears to believe and see and hear in the glorious good news of What Jesus has done on the cross to make a people for himself. And I pray that they would trust in him today. I pray these things for your glory and for the joy of your people. Amen. Okay, so here's what I want us to see today in this text. Sometimes there are passages that we work through in the Bible, and it is our custom for the vast majority of the time to just work through books of the Bible we call that expositional preaching, meaning that we want to expose the meaning of the text to our hearts and to our lives. And we want the point of all of our preaching and teaching here to be the point of the Bible. We don't want to start with an idea and then sort of cherry pick through the scriptures with verses that kind of maybe support it and and kind of confirm our ideas. We want to start with the Bible and just work through it and then look at how it applies to every aspect of life there are times when we're working through scripture when it's it's kind of zeroing in on one particular aspect of the Christian life, whatever that may be, Uh, or zeroing in on one particular aspect of doctrine, whatever that may be. But then there are times there are scriptures like this one here today, these first 12 verses of 1 Peter 2, that give us a sort of step back, a kind of of bird's eye view, a, a grand view of what God is doing, of what the whole Bible is about. In fact, in, in, in some ways, these 12 verses are, are, are sort of narrative of the, the end for which all things were created. And so today, I don't have any specific notes or anything, I just have three words that really are sort of the heartbeat of Crosspoint and what we're all about as a people. And these three words drive us, and I want, to, I want us to, to sniff out and dig out and detect and apply and gaze at and revel in these three words that, that really form who we are as the people of God. And these three words are the gospel, community, and mission, The gospel, community, and mission. So I think the great storyline of the scripture is that God has made a people for himself through Jesus' work on the cross, through Jesus' perfect life, through his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross where he absorbed God's wrath against the rebellion of his people, extinguished it, satisfied it and then rose again in victory over sin and has now commanded all people everywhere to repent and has made for himself a people through his work on the cross friends that's the gospel that's the good news that's what everything is about that's what the bible is about from genesis to Revelation. It is about what God has done in Christ to make a people for himself. That's the gospel, but the gospel doesn't just save individual people. It saves people and puts them into a church, a community, and and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a second, but there's a, a sort of big C aspect to that. Is this the way C would be to you guys? Yeah, a big C in the sense that we are part of the grand, great, universal church of God, whether we're Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists or Pentecostals or, or you know, whatever your flavor is, that we are all part. If we're trusting in Jesus, we may have some secondary differences, but we, with all believers from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people group, we are part of the universal, the great grand church of Jesus Christ. But that church finds its expression in little c, local churches like us, along with many others in our city that are faithfully preaching the gospel, that we are to find our, ourselves in the community to be formed together, to love one another, to serve one another, so that we might be conformed into the image of Jesus. And so we are people that are made alive by the gospel that are put into a community and then that community isn't just there to sort of roast marshmallows and you know scratch each other on the back and play all their favorite songs but then that community is is on a mission to As we read here, and I'm, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. This is so exciting. This is going to be a rough one, friends. I'm just all over the map on this because this is so rich. This community then is on a mission to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. (laughs) This 12 verses, it's like a mini, mini Bible in one. God has made a people for himself in Jesus He's put them together in a family that finds its expression in local churches, and he has that local church on a mission to give themselves away to proclaim the mercies of God, which is for their joy and God's everlasting glory. Gospel community mission. That's that's what this text is about. That's what we're about. So let's look back through here. Let's look now again... Um, at verses 1, 2, and 3 there, where Peter tells us to put away. He's continuing. Remember how we, at the end of chapter 1, talked about how the first part of the first chapter was Peter establishing the gospel, that we have been made alive, that through Jesus he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, Jesus has made us alive and now that we have been saved, we've been redeemed, we've been restored, that truth That indicative, that statement of fact, nothing that we have done, but all that God has done, now has implications in our life that we're supposed to live in a certain way. So we read that we were supposed to put away certain actions. We were to prepare our minds. We were to, remember what the King James said, gird up our loins, cinch our belt to be prepared to run and live in a certain way, not so that we will be accepted by God, but because we've been accepted, now. We live in a certain way, and he's continuing that line of thinking, and he says here to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, and Peter isn't just giving us imperatives that are sort of individually focused, but notice that this imperatives, these commands to, to put away certain actions, they zero in on the effect that the gospel should have on our relationship as a community. There are many other things that we need to not do and do as a result of being saved by God, but Peter seems to zoom in on particular things that cut against the fabric of our trust and love for one another as a community. So he says to put away. The church is to be a place of peace and truthfulness and honesty, a place where we put one another's interests above our own, a place where where hypocrisy, envy, deceit, malice are wrestled with and fought against. It doesn't mean that they're non existent, but it means that we fight against these things. We we make a decision to put them away. The the, the word picture here is to to literally to put away, and we see this same language in Colossians and Ephesians, where Paul gives us lists to fight sin, to put it away, to make a decision to take it off, almost like a garment, to take off a shirt, to put it away. Uh, Well, we um, have four children, as I think many of you know, and a crazy little thing happened on the way to having four children that Jennifer and I did not suspect. With each child comes a little laundry monster, like a a little creature that gets into their piles of clothes and causes them to multiply. It is unbelievable the piles of clothes that exist around our house. Not, let me be clear here, because I don't, I don't want to get it talking to you. not because my wife is not wonderful <laughs> at cleaning the house, but because there are little laundry monsters in our children's dirty clothes hampers that cause clothes to multiply. And because, evidently, Most of our children, if not all of our children, have not learned to put their clean clothes away. I don't know where they learned that from. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But we have piles of clothes. Some of them are clean, and some of them are dirty. And because, well, maybe another person in our room that's in our house that's an adult has not learned to fold clothes after they come out of the, the dryer... This particular person, he just, or well, that person, that adult just takes clothes out of the dryer and his way, or th- their way of ironing them is to just sort of run the dryer again a little bit and just dump the, the clean clothes on the bed and just sort of live off of the clean clothes. I don't know who that guy might be. But so we've got piles of clean clothes and we've got piles of dirty clothes <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> And uh, my wife has taught me a particular skill that I think every mother in this room has. It's the sniff test, right? Because there's wrinkled piles of clothes everywhere. And there's no no telling because somebody hasn't folded them whether or not they're clean or dirty. And I'll see my wife late at night walking around in our house with an angry and justifiably angry look on her face, sniffing t-shirts and kind of grumbling when she comes across a particularly stanky one. That, that's sort of the picture here that Peter's painting for us is that there's, there's a way that the gospel smells, you know, when it hits a group of people. There's an aroma of Christ. Second Corinthians 2. That we are the aroma of Christ. Always being led in triumphal Procession. To some, it's the aroma of life that causes them to repent in Jesus. And to others, it's an offensive aroma that would lead them to death. But there's a certain aroma to the gospel when it takes root in a group of people. And then there's a particular stench of sin, malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy. Oh, the church is to be a place where those things go to die on the ears of the godly and are not passed on. and Peter paints this picture of the imperatives in the community of Christ that the gospel should have. Listen to these words from our church covenant. When a person becomes a member of Crosspoint Church, they... they in God's grace, commit to live in this way. Of course, we will not live together in this way perfectly. We will offend one another. We will, we will sin against one another, but we will quickly repent. That's what it means to be a Christian in community. A few words from our church covenant. We will eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by walking together in love and in the Spirit and by putting away, taking off stinky shirts, all bitterness, anger, and injurious speech. We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love, with humility and gentleness. We will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other, and admonishing one another when necessary. Friends, do you realize that's what it means, biblically, to be part of a church, to be part of the community of God, not just to come You know, once or twice a week and hear something and then sort of apply it to your life personally. But to have this corporate dimension of the commands of the gospel for our joy, for our collective joy and for the glory of God. We see too in just these few verses how Peter gives us a picture of how Christians grow. They are to grow like newborn infants. Not, he wasn't writing to these people because they were all new Christians, although some of them were. So when he has this picture of an infant in his mind, I don't think it's because they're baby Christians in terms of just have coming to Christ. Some of them had been Christians for many decades. But that regardless of whether we're new in the faith or old, we are to be like babies. And how do babies feed? They feed completely dependently. And they feed often, right? Every You that have infants, every two or three hours, they've got to eat. They need milk. And this pure spiritual milk that Peter is referring to, it, it, it really refers back to the end of chapter 1, to the Word of God that is this imperishable seed. It is the word, the good news that was preached to you. And so how do Christians grow, friends? I know this may just sound very elementary, but Christians grow by God's word and they grow by feeding on God's word like newborn babies feed, not once a month or a devotion out of a book that you bought at some Christian bookstore when you need a word to kind of get you through a difficult moment once a month or so. But they are to, like a baby, feed on that word often and I don't offer this for for your guilt if you are not in God's word or if you are struggling with with being in God's word regularly but friends I just appeal to you as your brother in Christ that the the way the only way really the primary way not the only way, but the primary way that, that God has given His people to grow is through the Word of God. So, so if there right now, just if there is some obstacle in your life to taking in the Word of God on a regular basis, then, then I, I just pray that God would give you the obedience and the strength to, to remove that obstacle and to take in God's Word. To be part of a group of people, a community, to have people around you that will help you, you do that. Let's keep going. Verse verse 4. He says that we come to him now as his people in the community. And then he uses the strangest of metaphors to describe Jesus. We're coming to him, meaning Jesus. And about Jesus, he says that he is a living stone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then he compares us to be like living stones, just like Jesus. That we ourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now let's just kind of settle down there for a second on that metaphor of Jesus being a living stone. Isn't that strange? There's nothing more unalive than a stone. But a stone is an incredibly strong thing that you can find protection behind and that you can stand on for your foundation. But yet Jesus Jesus isn't just an inanimate unalive stone. He's a, a living stone. He has he has come back from the dead. He has defeated death. He is alive. He's defeated sin. We, we are here today not primarily because the Bible offers a better way to live in comparison to the wisdom of this world, although that's true. We're not here primarily today because we're trying to raise good children with good morals and ethics so that they would, you know, have a a good life, although that's part of it. Friends, we are here today because Jesus, who was dead, is alive, right? We are here today because there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem and everything flows out of that Christianity is not an ethic, it's not a world system, it is a message that Jesus who was crucified is now alive and therefore our greatest enemy, death, has been defeated by the one who conquered it and subordinated it and put it under his feet and now makes dead stones like us alive. Do you, see, do you see the, the, the logic that, that Peter, is, it's in his mind. Jesus was dead and now is alive. And you are dead in your sins. You were a dead stone too. But now, through Jesus, you are alive. Friends, that is the message of the gospel. And he says that there is, Just instantly, he goes from the gospel back into community. He goes into this picture of these stones now not just sort of laying out on the brickyard, individually being living stones, but growing together as a a spiritual house to be a, a royal, a holy priesthood and to do something, to offer spiritual sacrifices. To now live for him as a display of his power over death, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let me me stop here and just zero in on that phrase, a spiritual house. And and I want to just take a moment to uh, just sort of extrapolate an idea that I'm not so sure we, you know, I think it is implicit in this text that I'm not so sure we understand very well as Americans, and it's the idea of what it means to be a Christian in local community, in, in a local church. I think as American Christians, we sort of resist this idea of accountability to other Christians. And whenever we as pastors or spiritual leaders talk about how it is important to be in a church, to be a member of a local church, there's this thing I think that often rises up in us that sort of resists this, this, sort of, uh, this sort of accountability. And although we cannot find the phrase in the Bible that we should join a local church and be members of a local church, I think that the idea is actually woven into the Bible and is actually Implicit, it's just implied throughout the Old and New Testament, especially the the New Testament. that, That there's something going on here that's more than just sort of this ambiguous spiritual idea of the church in all of its beautiful reality as a spiritual house. Don't let that just be sort of like an ambiguous sort of cloud floating up in the air. But I think if if we were to go through the whole New Testament, we could see that that idea actually lands. It finds its expression in the life of a person who's been made alive, a dead stone that's been made alive by the living stone Jesus. It finds its expression in that person's commitment to and giving themselves to an accountable relationship with another group of Christians who have been made alive by Jesus in the context of a local church. And for, I think, just purposes of explanation, we refer to it as being a member, a person who's known, who has submitted themselves to the life of a local church, church membership. Now, people will object occasionally, and like I said, they will say, well, we don't see church membership in the Bible. I, I actually think we do. In First Corinthians 5, there is this really um, egregious and horrible Situation where there's this brother in the church who is in an immoral and scandalous relationship with his father's wife. Whether that was his stepmom or I don't know, this, we don't know much about it, but he was in an immoral relationship with his father's wife and the church seemed to be okay with this. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says... You, you can't let this be. This brother, by allowing him to live in this way, you are, you're soiling the witness of the gospel to an onlooking world. So, and Paul, and Paul uses these words in Corinthians, he says, put this brother out of the fellowship. Put him out. And I think if, there, if there's an out, then implicit in that, in that there's an in. There's a group of people who know, they are accountable for and who they know they have the authority to put out of something right and then and then we read in paul's second letter to the corinthians in second corinthians 2 he says where again he had encouraged the church to to discipline somebody who was sinning and he said that the discipline that they had enacted in this brother's life where they had put him out of the church whether it was the same guy that we're referring to in first corinthians 5 or not we don't know but we do know that in second corinthians 2 we pick up and there's somebody that has been put out because of this of sin and unrepentant sin and now paul says this brother has repented now bring this brother back in right and so I say that not to zero us in on discipline and sin so much, but to say that it seems to be implicit in the New Testament that there were multiple groups of people in Corinth and Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonica and other places that although they were all seeing themselves as part of the great capital C church of God, they knew that the commands of Scripture and the imperatives of Scripture actually landed in their lives in a tangible way and found their expression as they submitted themselves to the life of a local church that had elders and that practiced baptism and the Lord's Supper and had responsibility to care for each other and encourage one another for the proclamation of the gospel to an onlooking world. In fact, we see it, I think, even in Hebrews 1317 which is a verse honestly that keeps me and the other pastors sometimes up at night and it says obey your leaders and submit to them because they are those who keep watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. <laughs> Friends um, that, that's a sobering verse that am I, I and the other pastors here, the other pastors and elders, are accountable that someday we will stand before Jesus, and we will have to give an account of how we led you and how we taught the gospel to you and how we served you. Friends, that is a sobering, sobering thought. This is what one, this is what one old Scottish uh, pastor wrote to a younger pastor as he was meditating on this verse, there was this old Scottish pastor named John Brown. This was about 200 years ago in Scotland. That's why he was a Scottish pastor. It was in Scotland. And this young pastor had just graduated from seminary in Edinburgh or somewhere, and he was now sent to some country parish, and he was lamenting the fact that his congregation was very small in comparison to some of his classmates who were in city churches that were very large. And this old wise pastor who had, had, you know, had a few years underneath his belt and had been humbled by God, wrote to this young pastor and he says, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think that you have had enough people to care for. Friends, I think that the idea of committing yourself, we call it church membership here, of submitting yourself to the life of a local church, to elders and pastors who are to care for you, and to to deacons who are to, to serve you, and to the correct practicing of the ordinances of the church that Wayne led us in to read about and recite together, that baptism signifies the entrance into the church of God, and communion signifies the continuation in the church of God, carries with it so many benefits and built-in means of grace for the protection of our soul and for the witness of God. Because if I'm always on the outskirts of the church, if I'm just sort of considering myself a Christian, and I'm just kind of floating around from church to church, never really letting anybody know my life, never having any elders or pastors examine my life to see whether I truly understand the gospel, to see whether or not I'm truly in the faith, and I just kind of move around from place to place because, oh, this new pastor comes, and he's pretty good. Oh, I don't like the music here. Oh, they got a good Sunday school over here. Oh, I'm going to sin. I'm going to do this. I just become a consumer, and all along the way, friends, we potentially can lie to ourselves because what means do we have that God has given us to guard our hearts against sin? What if we fall into some false mindset and we're on the edge and we're never accountable and we've never actually submitted our lives to the, to the people of God which finds its expression in the local church. Friends, I can deceive myself and you can too and God has given us each other to protect each other against error. And then... If we don't submit ourselves to the life of the local church, we're always kind of on the outskirts, always consuming, always demanding more, always wanting something better, never really rolling up our sleeves and saying, this is the place that I'm going to be transformed into the image of Christ. And with these people, I am going to help to proclaim the mercies of God, the excellences of God to an onlooking world. Then we become all about our own personal growth and we forget about mission. But when we, we find ourselves in a place that puts a sort of great, gracious, holy pressure on one another to live in this way, we then are forced to wrestle with the implications of living on mission and not for ourselves. And should we wrestle with sin? And should the enemy try and drag us away? Or should we go through seasons where our flesh is waging a war against our new man? And we're absent for a time. We have people who know our name and who are responsible for us and who will call us, not out of religious guilt, but out of kind gospel love and say, hey, bro, hey, sis, where are you? What can we do to love you and serve you? That type of life together is what I believe Peter and Paul and the other Bible writers have in mind when they talk about being a spiritual house and a family of God. Well, let's keep going. Then Peter, uh, as he gives us this picture of Jesus being a living stone, it it takes him back. That comes from a scene in Isaiah. Now, Now Peter is going to kind of paraphrase and interpret some verses in Isaiah and out of Psalm 18 that he quotes, again sort of paraphrasing, and he's making a point about how Jesus is this, this stone. So he says, "...that behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will, will not be put to shame." And what Peter's doing is he's quoting from Isaiah 28, although not really quoting word for word. He's sort of summarizing a quote from Isaiah in Isaiah 28. And So so to understand why Peter goes to this Isaiah first, we have to understand what's going on in Isaiah in that time to make it make make sense to us. Let me just summarize the book of Isaiah for you here in just a a few seconds, which is an unwise thing to do, first of all, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Isaiah is uh, this prophet that God has raised up, and for the first half of Isaiah, the first 35 chapters of Isaiah, God, through Isaiah, is warning the people of the coming judgment through the hands of this people called the Assyrians, that because of their rebellion because of their not honoring God, because of them not living for God's glory, but their own, that God is raising up this group of people called the Assyrians who are coming to smash them, to defeat them, to take them away into captivity. That's the first 35 chapters of Isaiah. And then there's a couple chapters, 36, 37, and 38, where God miraculously rescues them from Assyrian Captivity and control, but he does it through the hands of another enemy, the Babylonians, who come and smash the Assyrians, but then take Israel into captivity, and that's the rest of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, where God has delivered them from one foe by his grace, but, deli- but handed them over to another to teach them a lesson. And then it ends on hope where God is saying that all of this is pointing towards a great deliverer, Jesus, who will come and finally and fully ransom his people from not just political captivity, but from their sins and eternal wrath forever and ever. And so Isaiah is kind of like a sort of mini gospel in and of itself, a mini Bible in and of itself where God speaks a word of hope to a people who are rebelling against him and is sovereign over the affairs of nations and is teaching his people and weaning them off of the world so that they might trust in him. And what is happening here in Isaiah 28 is that Isaiah, God is saying through Isaiah that his people have sought refuge. So what's happening here in this portion is that, that Israel is feeling threatened by this army from this group of people, the Assyrians. They're coming. They're marching. They can hear the drumbeat. You know, they're coming to, to defeat them. War is on the horizon. And Israel, instead of running to God and hiding in God, they are now considering... Making an alliance with Egypt. Remember Egypt and Exodus? That's the group of people that a little while before punished them and had them in captivity. And so we've got this foe that's marching. And Israel now, instead of running to God to take cover from their new enemy, is considering running back to an old enemy. Egypt. And God is saying to them in Isaiah 28... And Peter picks up on this language that I am laying in Zion in this city of God a stone and this stone will be your protector. You can take refuge. You can stand on this sure foundation. So as you are scared of the present enemy, don't run back to uh, alliance with a past enemy for your protection but stand on this stone that I am laying. And of course Peter now interprets the true meaning of what Isaiah is saying. Its, it's Stone isn't a physical stone. It's not a fortress, it's not a wall in Jerusalem, but it is Jesus. And so, so what's the application for us now as Peter writes this, that we are now living stones being made alive by God through Jesus, the cornerstone, the stone who has been made alive. And now we, as we deal with our present enemies, are not to make alliances with old ways or old enemies, but we are to hide ourselves behind the rock Jesus. And that's the imagery that Peter is, is referring to as he speaks about Jesus being this cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Just a quick question for my heart and yours. What are our Egypts? got a present difficulty and we are tempted to run to a past captor rather than to God a present enemy we're tempted to make alliance with a past enemy what are our Egypt's we like Israel in the Old Testament are tempted to run to alliances and compromises that cannot protect us we are tempted to reject God's offer of rest and refuge in Christ for temporary things that we can see and touch and taste and control I I just trust we could spend all day applying that but I trust that the Holy Spirit will make application to our hearts even now what we are prone to run to instead of God And then before we move on, there's just this important and sticky and humbling sentence at the end of verse 8. Peter's drawing this contrast that there are some that will trust and hide themselves behind this rock that is Jesus. And then there are some that will stumble over this rock. So for some, this rock is a fortress. And for others, it's a stumbling block. And he says at the end of verse 8 that they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now friends, when we read sentences like that in the Bible, it should do something in our hearts. First, it should humble us because it, it reminds us that God is in complete control and is free to determine the eternity of all people all individuals it humbles us because it reminds us that he is not bound by us and our rebellion or our obedience but we are bound by him and his grace to give life but yet we also see that God's Sovereignty over our destiny does not excuse or release mankind from responsibility. Because notice what Peter says. He says they stumble because they disobey the word. And so what lays before us now, each of us, Although God is outside of time and has determined the end from the beginning. And if anybody comes to Him, it is only because He has lavished His grace on them. Friends, we now are... In time, God is outside of time determining all things. Now we are in time and each person in this room and every person in the world has a real choice to make to either obey the gospel, the word, or to disobey the gospel and the word. And heaven will be full of people that obeyed God, who God in time moved on their hearts, who they willingly responded in faith to trust in Jesus, to turn away from sin and believe in Jesus for eternal life. And hell will be full of people, not who are beating at the gates of heaven, saying, let me in, let me in, and God said no to, but it will be full of people that have made a decision to run away from God like the rest of mankind. And when we see these words, friends it should humble us that if we are a christian it is because god before time began made us a christian and then throughout in time in our life orchestrated events and like we read in first peter according to the foreknowledge, the foreknowing love of God sanctified us, separated us by his Holy Spirit and then caused us to believe in Jesus so that if we are in Christ now, it's not because we were smarter than the next guy or more intelligent than the person down the block, but solely because of God's fatherly, loving grace. Why is that important to remember? Because if my salvation depended ultimately on me and my strength, friends, I would lose it every day. But God has said here that he has foreknown and foreloved a people for himself, and that's what he says in verse 9. Let's keep going and we'll wrap this up shortly. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I mean, do you see in verse 9? Do you see gospel, community, mission? But you are a chosen race. You've been made alive. You were a dead stone that God made alive through Jesus' work on the cross. He bore the wrath that should have been yours. He absorbed it. He extinguished it. He removed it as far as the east is from the west. He rose from the grave. He called all people to repent. He set his saving love on you. He made you alive. You were a dead stone that now has a heart that beats, that has ears that can hear, that has a taste for the gospel. And he hasn't just left you alone in the scrapyard. He's put you into a people called the church and he hasn't been just given you a sort of campfire to sing kumbaya songs around he's now called you to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light verse 9 is unbelievable verse 9 verse 9 is the point of human history. If you're going to memorize something and you're thinking, oh my gosh, three or four verses is too much, come on. Before the end of the time that we get to 1 Peter, which is going to be around December, if you can't stamp verse 9 on your soul, I'll pray for you. That would be a wonderful verse to memorize. But you, you Christian are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Like, you're mine, God says to you. Like, you're mine, right? You're mine. I love you because I loved you, and I will never lose you because God doesn't lose his stuff, right? Nobody pickpockets Jesus. Jesus right? Jesus doesn't leave stuff laying around. You are mine, Jesus says. The truest thing about you is not the sin that you're struggling against, not the situation that is not optimal in your life right now, not the future that you are discouraged about here on this earth, but the truest thing about you, friend, if you are trusting in Christ, is that you are God's. And when you anchor that down in your soul, friends, that causes you to wake up in the morning with a gospel-fueled fierceness to fight sin and flesh in the world and everything in it. Friend, that's why Christians need to hear the gospel again and again and again because you know how you fight lust? You fight it by remembering that you are God's. Do you know how you fight difficulty in parenting is by remembering that amidst your mistakes as a parent, the truest thing about you is that you are God's and he is good to his children. Do you know how you fight a future that seems bleak and less than optimal and not what you hoped for when you were a child? You fight it by remembering and hearing again and standing on the sure foundation of Jesus and knowing that you are God's and life friends, is not just these 80 or 90 years, but it is eternity forever and ever and ever in increasing joy being His. That is what causes people to give their lives away and to go serve seven years in a city of 130,000 people where there are only four believers. Because the truest thing about them is not their comfort or their 401k or their stuff or raising babies in America, or whatever it is that might draw somebody back from following God. But the truest thing about that couple is that they are gods. And when you are gods, you have all the riches. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the type of fuel that causes a couple from this church to say, I'm going to take my two beautiful children, and I'm going to go across the world, to Central Asia, to a people group that doesn't know Jesus, because I am God's. That's what causes a, a, a congregation like this to say, we're not just going to be a group of people that live for ourselves, but we're going to get outside of ourselves, and we're going to serve people in our community that don't know Jesus, because it's not just about us, because the truest thing about us is not our comfort, but that we are God's. Verse 9 is huge. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you (laughs) as sojourners. Oh, God, what a word. This world is not our home. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, not because Jesus is against your joy, but because he's all for it. And true joy is found in obedience to him and not things that wage war against our soul. Finally, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's this group of people that have been made alive by the gospel. They've been put into community and now they have a mission to proclaim the excellencies of him and their life together. I think these last few verses are saying that our corporate life together, our sanctification, our growth, our life together as a local church connected, of course, to all of the other gospel-believing local churches in our city who we love dearly and all throughout the world who we love dearly, our collective sanctification leads and is the means that God uses for the saving of an onlooking world. Do you see that? Our sanctification leads to others' salvation. Because God accomplishes a mission through the people. So I end with this. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's the gospel. If you're a Christian, that's the truest thing about you. If God has shown you in the course of the past few minutes that you came into this room, maybe thinking you're a Christian or realizing that you aren't, you must... And you can trust in Jesus even now. Do you hear these words of life? It is for your joy. Mercy is there for you to receive and to obey and to taste and know indeed that the Lord is good. It, it happens when you, the Bible calls it repentance and faith. When you repent of these broken pleasures, you turn away from them. And you trust in Jesus. And you realize, I know that my only hope for right standing with my creator is not through my relative goodness, but in what Jesus has done on the cross. And I trust in him, friends. Do that even now. That's what it means to be a Christian, to trust in Jesus's work for your right standing with your holy creator, God, and not in your own. And that is what it means to receive mercy. Secondly, this text tells us that once we were not God's people, but now we are God's people. Just yesterday at this event, last night I met a guy, an African-American young man from a church in East Point, Georgia, who grew up in Brooklyn, and he and I instantly... We were each other's people. We, we had more in common because of Christ than I have with even some of my own family members who do not know Jesus. God in his kindness takes people from every tribe and nation and tongue and he grafts them together into a people. You, Christian, are part of something bigger than yourself. It's the church. And finally, once you had nothing to proclaim, But now you have everything to proclaim. The excellencies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do this as a local church. Not necessarily by organized things, but just through everyday life. Through knowing the gospel as individual Christians and being able to speak it winsomely in our our spheres of influence. By inviting people to church. By testifying about what God's grace has done in our lives. And over the course of time, God begins to create an aroma in a group of people who live out the glories of verse 9. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, I come to you now. We thank you for this beautiful section of peter for my friends in this room who are not yet or came into this room not trusting in Jesus would you would you make more jesus would you make jesus more beautiful than this broken world would you give them a heart Would you make their dead heart of stone come alive so that they can believe in Jesus? Turn away from things that wage against their soul and look to and long for Jesus and trust in his righteousness and not their own. Father, for the rest of us in this room who are your people, we are so prone to wander. Would you dig deep this beautiful picture of the gospel we read about today? Would you dig it deep into our souls? And with gospel humility and community love as the people of God and to care more for your mission than our comfort, would we fight sin our flesh and our enemy with gospel-soaked ferociousness because the truest thing about us is that we are yours in Christ together for your glory and our joy Lord, would you do these things even now in Jesus' name Amen.